Well, good morning. So I uh, want you to keep in mind what it is that we just took part in throughout this message, because it kind of hinges on remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. But I want to open up by asking you a question. What is the most valuable thing that you own? Now, you might define value in a different way. Maybe to you, the most valuable thing that you own is um, what has the highest price tag on it. So maybe it's a vehicle, maybe it's a house, maybe um, it's something like that. Maybe you place value on um, something that is priceless. Maybe it's that thing that somebody gave you a long time ago that just kind of stuck in your heart, and it's like, I want to remember that. So maybe it's like an old Bible from a grandparent that has their notes in it, and you're like, I, I get to see what they were thinking, and that is important to me. So that is the most valuable thing because it's been passed down. And so there's really a couple ways that we can determine value. One way to determine value is that is a, a meaning or a sentiment that it has to us. And then another way of determining value is deciding what somebody will pay for it. For example, um, cars find their value based on somebody is willing to pay this much for it. For example, I like to watch Shark Tank. It's a show where, inve or not investors, entrepreneurs come before some like billionaire people and they pitch their idea. And usually they're talking about, well, what is the cost of everything? And they say, we ran a price range on it and we found that people are comfortable spending X amount of dollars on it. And so the customer is determining the value of it. I mean, this is why, for example, I looked up what is the most expensive baseball card ever sold. It is a 1952 Mickey Mantle baseball card, and it sold for $12.6 million. And I think that was 2022, August 8th of 2022. It's a piece of paper with a dude's picture on it, but yet somebody decided, I'm going to spend $12 million on that. Now, before we get too crazy thinking of that, I have a penny from 1925 that I spent $2 on. Now, that thing just exponentially, that's like 200% its original value. That it, maybe more than that, I don't know math. But, you know, I found this penny, it said 1925, 25 is my favorite number. So to me, it was like, yeah, I'll spend $2 so that I can have this round piece of metal that says one cent, and I'll say it's worth $2. And I'm sure if I offered it to you, none of you would give me more than five cents for it. Even probably less than that. Like, no, I'll give you a penny, or a piece of lint, or a button. You'll find something to be like, this is how much we think it is worth. But value is found in what somebody is willing to pay for it. That guy on the side of the road found a sucker for a 1925 penny, and he made $1.99 off of it pretty much because he found somebody who was willing to pay that much for it. Here's the thing. The more valuable something is, the more care we take of it, right? So, for example, I have baseball cards. I don't even know where they're at right now. I think they're in my parents' attic somewhere, chewed up by a rat. But my parents' house doesn't have rats. Anyways, uh, <laughs> but, you know, like, I have them there, and they're in maybe this little green box, I think, and they're just thrown in there because they're not worth that much. 
But that 1952 Mickey Mantle baseball card that's worth $12.6 million, I can tell you that thing is not thrown under a bed somewhere. That thing is in a case surrounded by lasers with a gate protecting it, I'm sure. Like that guy is taking care of that thing because he knows this is valuable. The more value something holds, the more care we take of it. Look at vehicles, for example. I owned a 1996 Toyota Tacoma, and that thing had been rolled over one time, and it had been broken, it had been wrecked, and so like the whole top was Bondo crusting apart, and I loved that truck. And I was headed home one night, and it was like late, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to take dirt roads because it's, it's late, it's beautiful, I'm going to cruise with the windows down. I come up over this peak, I look down for getting, the road comes to a T, just in time to look back up, and there's trees right in front of me. And I mean, I smashed right into those trees. And now, if that was like a new Toyota Tundra, I'd have been flipping out. But it was a piece of junk. And so I just like got back in, drove home like everything works, because it didn't have value. And so I didn't really care what kind of, what kind of uh, condition it was in. I called it character. But now, if something is more valuable, I'll tell you, if I get a brand new, if some, I'm not buying it, but if one of y'all want to take a collection and buy me a brand new, like, we'll, we'll go cheap uh, Tesla Model S, only $135,000, start the collection, then I'll tell you, I will take the best care of that thing I can. It'll be detailed, it'll be clean, I won't even let my dog ride in it. Now, we're, we're, this is a long ways around. <laughs> Could have shot straight there, but we're not. I'm jacked up on coffee. So, it's, again, the point is, the more valuable you see something, the more care you're going to take of it. The more valuable you see your life, the more care you're going to take of your life. That's what Paul is talking about in our passage this morning as we are going to be in Colossians chapter 3 through the first 17 verses. Because Paul has already told us through Colossians, he has said, do not settle. Do not settle for average. Instead, you have been called to be a part of something big. And then he went last week and he told us that Christ has given his life for us. We just remembered that. That Christ gave his life so that we can be in connection with God. You want to know what your value is? It's immeasurable. Because Christ has given his life for you. The price of your life is God Almighty coming down in flesh, taking on our sins, and dying the death that we deserve so that we can be with him. That's how valuable you are. So that's why I want you to remember what we just took part in. To remember your value, what Christ says about you. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that you can be in connection with him. Because what Paul is going to say from here on out hinges on that. So church, I'm talking to you today. Whereas a lot of times, you know, we like it when toes get stepped on. I hear that sometimes, like, oh, yeah, you, you stepped on some toes today. And it's like, first off, I don't want to step on toes. I want God to do the convicting. But secondly, this message is for you. If at any point in this message you think, man, I wish John Doe was here to hear that, turn it around. Because God has a message for you today as children of his. And so we're going to open up in a word of prayer 
and then we'll dive into our text today. So Father God, we just come before you and I pray that this message fall upon hearts that are ready to receive it because God, you have given your life for us to be with you. And so I just pray that you speak to us this morning and that we hear your message. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. So Paul ended Colossians chapter 2 with this. This is verse 11. He said, in him, being in Jesus, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul is telling us that we are buried with Christ. We died to our old self, buried ourselves with Christ. And then he says, you have been made alive with Christ, even though you were dead. So this is where Paul goes in and says, if this is true, then you should do this. Because Paul has told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, meaning that you have given your life over to him. You are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so then he says, based on that, you now live your lives as new creations. And Jesus, he tells us in John chapter 3, verse 3, he says, this is how you become a new creation. He says in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the way that you become this new creation is you are born again. And he's talking to Nicodemus at this moment. And Nicodemus is like, do I like crawl back up into my mother and come back out again? And Jesus is like, no, unless you are born of the spirit and of water you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. In which Paul just told us, we have been circumcised in a circumcision that is not made in the flesh. Because the Jews used to think that the way you become a child of God is by getting a little surgical procedure happen, and then suddenly you are a child of God. And Jesus, through Paul, is saying it's more than that. It's not just the removal of flesh. It's the removal of a broken heart. It's the removal of, as Jeremiah tells us, a heart of stone. And he's giving us a heart of flesh. It is being born again. And so Paul is now telling us in Colossians chapter 3, if you are born again, you live differently. You live your life based on that. Colossians chapter 3, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, you are a new creation. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of earth. You see, so often Paul is talking to us about the struggle that we have with the flesh. And really, he just narrowed it down. I'm not fighting my actual flesh and blood. I'm not fighting against my beating heart. What I'm fighting against is what goes on between my ears. 
Paul tells us in Galatians, not Galatians, he tells us in Ephesians, he says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of this dark world. In which most of that, James tells us that when we sin, it's not even really because Satan is tempting us, it's because of my own selfish desires. That I see something and I'm not willing to wrap my mind around what God says is true. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 12 tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world, but instead we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It starts here. That first off, what I have to do is I have to have a change in thought so that when Christ comes into my life and convicts me, I change the way that I think about things. I change the way that I think about uh, the sins of my past. That I no longer think, hey, these are still acceptable, but instead I fight against them. I go to war every day against the thoughts of my mind. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. He says, the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to obey Christ. He's saying that what we do is we take our thoughts captive and we set our minds on the things that are above. We set our minds on Christ, on his will, on the way that he calls us to live our lives. Because honestly, too often, whenever I get caught in those dark moments is because I'm not controlling my thoughts. It's because I'm not taking them captive. Instead, I'm allowing my mind to wander and it goes darker and darker and darker until finally I have to snap out of it and be like, how did I get here? It's because I allowed this thought to wander and I did not control it. An ancient philosopher, he said it this way. He said, watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. So it all starts in the way that we think. Uh, Proverbs tells us in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And that's not talking about my physical beating heart, but it's talking about my inner being, which contrives everything that I am, including my thoughts. And it starts in, what is it that you're dwelling upon? If you have been raised again in Christ, Paul says, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of this world. Set your mind on Christ. And so that's what we do. We guard our heart by focusing on the things that we think about. Because Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, he says, Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The way that you control your thoughts directs the way that you live your life, and it affects your attitude. I mean, in the athletic realm, I, I like sports. And so in the athletic realm, you can tell almost when you have somebody beat by the way that their head goes. Say, say they're playing basketball and they, they airball a shot and you can tell, oh man, we're in their head because their head drops and they lose morale from there on out. 
Whereas if you can, as a coach, get them to overcome that thought, to keep thinking positive things, hey, you are better than that last shot, then you can keep them in the game. The same way with the spiritual battle. If what Satan can do because he sets up snares, if he can get us to start dwelling in our own thoughts negatively, he can control our attitude. And if he can control our attitude, he's going to control the way we live our life. And then we're going to start thinking those thoughts that we talked about last week. Did God really mean that? Can God really love me because I'm a woe is me, miserable person? Which is true when you're not under Christ. But the promise that Paul just told us in 2 Corinthians 5 is, if you're in Christ, you are now a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So as that new creation, you dwell on the things that are of Christ. You put your mind on the things that are above. Where Christ is, this is our passage, Colossians 3.1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You set your minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. And so all of that comes. It, it starts with God doing the work in our heart. Because so many times people have thought, well, I'm just going to will it into fruition. And it's like that, that can get you only so far. But Christ coming into your life, making you that new creation, helps you through that. And that comes by being born again. But do you know the thing about being born again? There's something that has to happen for you to be born again. You have to die. And I'm not talking about a physical death here. I'm talking about the spiritual death. You have to die to yourself in order for new life to come. Death has to happen. Paul, he tells us in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So to, to be in Christ means that I am dying to myself. That's what Paul told us, that we have been buried with Christ. Burial happens when death occurs. So we die to our old self, we're buried with Christ, and then when we come up, symbolized in our baptism, we're going down, dying to ourselves. we're being buried with Christ, and then we come up as new creations. Let me tell you, if nothing has happened in your heart, all you've done is taken a bath. That has to happen internally, and then we represent it through the bear, through the baptism. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We weren't controlling our thoughts. We were letting our thoughts just blindly lead us. We were slaves to our thoughts, slaves to our bodies. Because if I don't control my mind, my body's going to do what it wants. And so when I crave something, I'm just going to freely do that. Because I'm not winning the battle in my mind. And so we control that. We die to our old self. Because here's the mantra of the satanic church. If it feels good, do it. In, in whatever sense. If it feels good, just go ahead and do it. Do it how you want, when you want, with who you want, and there's no consequences for it. 
That is the mantra of the satanic church. But as Christ followers, we are called to live in a new life. That we die to our old way of life and we have been raised new in Christ. And Paul, he goes on to say this in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self in which, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and un uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Every single day, we're taking those things and we're saying, I am not going to be controlled by those. I am going to wage war against them. Instead, we deny our bodies the desires that they have because our bodies are still going to have that desire. We're still going to be tempted to lust. We're still going to be tempted to lie. We're still going to be tempted to be controlled by our natural desires. But we die to them and we kill them daily. We don't conform to this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And it's actively doing that. The thing is, is that if we don't put those things to death daily, if we don't say I'm denying myself that and I'm going to dwell on the things of Christ, they control us. That's, that's why so many times I'm cruising down the road and it's just like, how did my mind get to this spot? Because I was not actively waging war against it. And so we're called to daily fight against it. This means that we no longer live according to the flesh. That's the way the world lives. The world is, if you're not serving God, you're serving Satan. So the world is living according to the lie of, if it feels good, do it. Christians are not to live that way. Christians are not to walk in sin. Now, hear me out on this. There is a difference between walking in sin and struggling with sin. There is a difference between practicing sin and having those temptations and falling short. Because Romans tells us everyone's fallen short. Paul even tells us after he has been saved that he still struggles in Romans chapter 7 with the things he doesn't want to do. And so I'm not saying that like from this moment on you better be perfect because I'm not perfect still. I struggle with things. But the believer should not walk in sin, should not practice sin. John, he tells us in 1 John chapter 6, or there's not six chapters, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John 
is telling us we're still going to sin. To say that we don't have sin makes us a liar. But he says we confess our sin. And to confess is not this trivialized thing where we just say, hey, this week I lied. Don't hold me accountable. Don't expect any change from me. I feel so much better I got that off my chest. Now I'm going to go lie again. That's not confession. That's just stating something you did. Confession comes with repentance. It comes with, I don't want to live in this anymore. So I'm not just going to stand here and tell people, you know what, I, I struggle with anger, but don't hold me accountable to it. If we struggle with it, we fight it daily. And that's, that's the Christianese speak is, well, I know I'm not perfect. I struggle with this. And this is where we want other people to change their lives, but don't try and change mine. It's like, yeah, I mean, I'm not as bad as them, but I'm not perfect. I struggle with whatever it is, but they need to change. This is where God's talking to you. He's saying, you die to whatever you say I struggle with. He says, don't practice that. Don't even struggle with it. Die to it every single day. If you can fill in that blank, God is telling you to die to that, to hand that over to him, to seek to give that up. Now, you are probably going to struggle with it, but don't use that as an excuse. We confess our sins, and he is faithful and just, but we don't walk in sin. John goes on in chapter 3. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're told to walk in God. This is where last week I made the statement that if you are like, I want God, but I want the world, You need to decide. Because what John just told us is to make this claim, I love God, but I'm not going to change any of my life. Jesus, Jesus through John is saying, you're lying. That you're not actually loving God. You're not actually living for God. Instead, you're living for your sin. And if you live, if you walk, if you practice sin, he says, you are of the devil. And you are to confess that, repent of it, and turn to him, and you will find grace. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Do we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? It's that mindset of, well, I'm saved, so I can keep living in sin. And what Paul's just told us is you died to sin. You have been made new. The old is gone. You no longer walk in that way. And notice what Paul said in verse 6 of Colossians chapter 3. He said, on account of these, the wrath of God is being poured out. 
So here, here we are where we have, I love God. I love what Jesus just did for me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. I'm going to keep living in my sin. I'm going to be comfortable in this world. And Paul is saying the wrath of God is poured out because of that. Now, now here's the thing that I find really interesting, and it's been in the news a lot lately, and it kind of breaks my heart. How the symbol of God's grace, a rainbow, has been hijacked to be a symbol of, I am going to freely live in my sin. It's a painful thing to take what God meant to say, I will never flood the earth again. Now, there's another wrath coming, but it's not through water. But he says, I will never flood the earth again. I'm going to give my grace upon the earth. And there are people who in the name of Jesus are saying, I'm going to live however I want to live. And now a lot of us can be like, sweet, I wish those people would hear that part of the sermon. Again, God's not talking just to them. He's talking to you here today. Because notice what else he says. He says it's not just sexual immorality, as in living that lifestyle. It's sexual immorality, as in living with your spouse before you're married. Do we have a hatred for that? He says in uh, verse 5 through 8, he says, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. He says impurity. He says passion. He says evil desire. He says coveting. Man, how often are you like, boy, I wish I had what they had. He says on behalf of that, the wrath of God is coming. He says, you used to live in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Boy, have you ever talked bad about somebody? The wrath of God is coming because of that. Obscene talk from your mouth. We are to hate those things because they cost Jesus his life. Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way, if Christ has died for me, I cannot trifle with the things that killed my very best friend. If Christ has died for these things, how can I continue after claiming Christ, walk in them and say, you know what, Jesus, I know you suffered hours on the cross. I know you poured out your blood for me. I know you took the beatings and the scorn and the shame for me. Thank you. I'm going to keep living in my sin. You know, there was a movement that started in a 1970, I believe, 1980, I'm sorry, and it's called MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. So in 1980, May 3rd of 1980, there was a 13-year-old softball all-star named Carrie Leitner, and she was killed in Fair Oaks, California. She and a friend, they were walking to a church carnival, and at the same time, a three-time repeat offender out of jail just two days from his fourth DUI arrest was barreling down the road. He hit Carrie from behind, threw her out of her shoes 125 feet, fled the scene, but later he was arrested and charged with her death. In that moment, Carrie became the first face of drunk driving victims. Carrie's mother, Candace Leitner, carried her daughter's photo with her as she worked tirelessly to change drunk driving laws in California to try and make a sense of a senseless act and turn her pain into purpose. Now, do you think that Candace is like, you know what, drunk driving killed my daughter. I'm going to go kick back a couple. I'm going to hop behind a wheel. Instead, she probably hates alcohol because of what it did to her loved daughter. 
How do we feel about our sin whenever we see what it did to our loving Savior? That we claim, Jesus, you held nothing back for us, so I'm going to live how I want. But we are called to have a hatred for that sin of anger, of malice, of slander, of improper speech, of sexual immorality, covering all kinds of any sin. Because James tells us if you are guilty of breaking one of the commandments, you are guilty of breaking all of the commandments. And so what we are called to do is hate sin. He tells us to put it off, and then he tells us live in the new life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, whenever we die to ourselves, we're raised to life in Christ, and he puts these things in us through his spirit. Galatians chapter 5 tells us, he says, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passionate desires. So here, here's the thing. You're saved by grace through faith alone. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us that. But as James tells us, a faith without works is dead. I saw a little meme the other day, and it cracked me up. Uh, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, it's about like they're these little hobbits, and they got to go destroy this ring. And the main one, Frodo, is leaving, and he's trying to leave his best friend, Samwise Gamgee, behind. And he says, I got to go, and Samwise says, but I'm coming with you. And this meme was talking about, we are saved by grace alone. And then Samwise, trying to come after him, said, works. And he was like, but I'm coming with you. Because I know it's a whole lot funnier if you actually saw it. But <laughs> that's the way it is. It's like, hey, I'm saved by grace alone through my faith, but works are coming along. Because when I'm saved, I bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And it comes along with me. And so the, the crowds that Paul is talking to here, 
When he says you are saved by grace alone, he's talking to that crowd that thinks I have to earn it. I'm going to work. And he says, no, it's by grace alone through faith that you have been saved. Because in verse 9, he says it's not the result of works. And then James is talking to the crowd who thinks, sweet, I'm saved by grace. I can keep on sinning, right? I don't have to actually do anything. I can just claim faith and we're all good, right? And he says, no, a faith without works is dead. You're saved by grace through faith, but your faith produces works. You're saved by grace alone, but a saving grace and a saving faith is never alone. Martin Luther said that. And so Paul wraps up how we should live in verse 17. He says here, we're going to bind this all together for you. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus says, the way that you do this is everything you do, you live for God. He calls us to be set apart, to live our lives for him and to give him all the glory. That's how we do that. We die to our old self and then it's like, all right, what do I do now? Everything you do through your word, through your actions, you do it for the glory of God. You die to your sins and you're raised new in Christ. And the reason that we do this, the, the question might be, but why? If I'm saved, why would I do that? Because when you see the value of something, you take care of it a whole lot more. When you see the value of your life, you live it so much more for God. When you see that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, you live your life for him. Paul told us in Colossians 2, you were dead in your trans tra trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He took our sins and he nailed them to the cross. That's the value that you have. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. When you see that God held nothing back, but he loved the world so much that he gave his only son that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. How can you keep on living in sin? How can you look at the cross, and I know we make it look really pretty, we put diamonds in it, we make it out of things that we like and wear it as jewelry, but it was blood splattered. It had flesh hanging on it. Jesus was beat so badly that we're told he didn't even resemble a man. That if we could walk around with that image in our mind and see this is what my sin cost, how could you keep on walking in sin? How could you say, thanks for going through that horrendous thing, God, so that I can keep nailing you up there by living my life against you? Thanks for the grace. I don't want to live for you, though. Give me my get out of hell, get out of hell free card. But instead, what Jesus says is, no, I died so that you could be made new, so that you are no longer a slave to your sin. Because that's the thing we have to realize. When we live according to the flesh, no matter how do what you want that makes you happy, it does not truly make you happy. 
Maybe for that night until you wake up the next day and you don't remember anything you did and you have a massive hangover. Maybe for that moment of gratification until you realize you destroyed every relationship you had, seeking after the almighty satisfaction of your flesh. Whatever it is, it gives temporary relief and then it gives a longevity of pain. Whereas when you give your life over to Christ, there's going to be moments of pain, but you're going to have an eternity of satisfaction and joy beyond whatever comes your way. And you live in that. You die to your old self. That's what Paul says. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Father God, I thank you for the hope that we have in you. God, I thank you that you put Jesus through what I was supposed to go through and what we all were supposed to go through. But God, I pray that we see the severity of what our sin costs. And God, that it, it makes us hate our sin, that we set our lives apart for you. And so God, I pray for your children who are hearing my voice right now, that if there be anything in our life that we are accepting as sin, God, help us have just that taste of bitterness in our mouths towards it and that we die to ourselves so that we can live for you and God if there be anybody here who is living according to the flesh who is just as Paul said carrying out the desires of the mind carrying out the desires of the body and is by nature a child of wrath let them see that you came to make them new that all they have to do is give their life over to you surrender it to you and God you do the work in their heart so God, whatever it is that you're working on the people, help us not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can live for you in everything we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray this, amen.